Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Mangum Talks. We're here for our second part of Mangum Reads covering A Monster Calls. With me as always is BJ. BJ, how's it going? Pretty good, Spencer. How are you doing? You're not making it through. We had a... I'm not necessarily sure fun is the right word, but we had a delightful experience talking about this book last week, so much so we wanted to come back for one more round to cover what is a surprisingly dense, officially labeled young adult book. Yeah, I, I think this uh, puts a good entry into our masochistic uh, book reading log. <laughs> as said, we wanted I wanted to hit something that was truly as different as possible from Guards Guards as I possibly could swing it, and with this one I think I hit the fences. We'll have to find something something else entirely different for next week, too. Yeah, that sounds good. But, BJ, we covered a lot of ground last week. I think I spent about half the time talking about all the things we would speak about next episode and then immediately talking about them last episode. But there's still a few things that we didn't really address. Um, if you don't mind, i got a few recommendations we can hit to start. Sounds good. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I think one that we've talked about both on, this, on the podcast and our own spare time and one of the overarching points of debate for this book is to what degree is this fantasy or other way of putting it to what degree are we expected to believe or expected to conclude that the fantasy is actually happening in the real world outside merely just the eyes and experiences of connor i think it's a question the book doesn't really ever intend to provide a clear answer for but it is certainly fun to debate from what evidence that we have yeah, um, I, th- I think there is some direct evidence in the book that leans in certain directions, but I also think that the interpretation of the opposite side is is completely reasonable and valid. And so we, we touched on it last episode where, you know, what we thought the result of the dreams were and what we thought the tree actually was. And, I, you know, there, because we talked about how there are essentially two parts of the story. There's the part that's solidly based in reality, the real world's interactions with his mom, his grandma, um, the people at school, his dad, people like that. That's very definitely, you know, there's no real question about it. The real question really comes in what is the role of the yew tree? Is the yew tree in his head? Is it something that's influencing his actions? Or is it actually you know, the tree outside of his room is getting up and, and actually doing things and wandering around. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I think, I, I think it kind of hinges on the question of to what degree is Connor creating this thing? Um, it's unquestionably, I think, it's, I think it's, un, 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 uh, you can't really debate that he has in some ways made it real to the sense that he is anthropomorphized to the degree that it is governing his actions, whether he fully thinks he's in control of them or not. But there are several moments where it is very much left open to debate whether what we're seeing through Connor's eyes is accurate or we're truly just seeing it, you know, in a more light way through the lens of madness. One of the early examples we mentioned were the three things that appear in his room for the first time, the first three times he um, encounters the monster. The uh, yew tree needles, the yew tree berries, and eventually, I suppose, a yew tree sapling that's actually growing out of a knot in the floor. Um... All yeah. of these. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, you know, th- this comes back to uh, our, our friend Lee's distaste for a imperfect narrator. Um, and I'm actually curious what he would think of this story as to whether it's an imperfect narrator or not. Because 
you know, it's less of a, I don't know what's going on, or, you know, there are things happening in the background that I'm not aware of, and more, we don't know what's happening in reality, but we do know what's happening in, in Connor's mind, or, you know, the reality that he's experiencing is something that we actually get to experience. Right. With respect to these first three instances, from the reality that we experience, well, from the perspective we experience through Connor, he encounters the monster at 12.07, wakes up again no matter how much time has passed at 12.07, and suddenly something new and mysterious and utterly impossible has appeared there in his room, which couldn't have done. The window was locked. There's no way that a sapling could grow out of the boards on the floor. But it's clear that Connor's losing time. It's clear that he is seemingly going to sleep in a state where his sleep has been consistently disturbed and fitful for a period of up to a year. Is it possible that he's sleepwalking and getting these things so as to make the illusion that he's put in his head all the more real, to make it all the more possible that it is something outside of him that could actually change the real world, rather than himself just kind of wandering in self-created delusion? Sure! We've debated endlessly. I think you came up with a very fun theory last week about what it could mean for the uh, tree to emerge from the knot in his floor. And the seeds, and and maybe a little bit of the the tree leaves or, or whatever dirtying the floor or whatever it is. Um, no, need, no need to dance with euphemisms. Repeat the theory for our wonderful audience. Well, actually, it was... I, I guess I'm not really trying to use a euphemism, but... You know, I, I feel like the mess that he made could be basically, you know, him urinating his, his bed sheets, and then the uh, seeds uh, that come from the yew tree could very well be a wet dream, and then finally the sapling that, that appears from a knot of wood could just be morning wood, and he's trying to sort of sublimate and give some reason that he's having these normal things happen to him that are so diametrically opposed to the depression and uh, uh, emotional things that he's going through in the relationship with his mother. It's, you know, if uh, his mother's dying of cancer and having these, you know, sexual thoughts or whatever could just be such an imposition to his already fractured mind that he basically covers it up with a convenient fantasy. It's a decidedly Freudian interpretation, but it's a fun one to consider. I mean, it's also perfectly possible, too, that he could be going through these very natural processes, but he kind of makes them monstrous because he has no one really there to help him go through them or explain them. I mean, he's essentially been a, an increasingly free-range child who's serving as his own parent and caring for himself for, what, a year now? Some significant period of time. And yeah. so these very natural functions, these very natural coming-of-age moments, he's alone in the world to experience to the point that he's made them fantastical. He's made them part of some unexplainable, monstrous phenomenon because he has nothing to actually ground them in reality. And I'll tie this in with some other things, perhaps, which is he has, there are basically no male characters other than himself and his bully, but, you know, I feel like that's only a vague male character. There's no male role model, and his father appears very briefly towards the end of the book. And so, again, this could be a... He doesn't have any concept of what it is to be a male, and so the things that are sort of in... that show up 
and show his masculinity are more monstrous than normal, given all of the other people around him, like Lily, her mom, his mother, his grandmother, um, all the teachers in his school appear to be female as well. And so he's sort of the only male of the story other than these two very flawed characters, I would say. Which puts the uh, figure of the monster in an interesting light, because the monster himself described, monster describes himself as being inherently primal, very much of the earth, the inherent wildness of the earth embodied in physical form. And is distinctly described as being vaguely maleish. So he in many ways could be a physical manifestation of masculinity trying to bleed into his life and provide him some degree of lesson and guidance in the world. And that also could be why the major outlet that he chooses and sort of the tree takes over and does for him, depending on your interpretation, is violent. Um, it's either immense destruction of property or you know, well-nigh maiming his bully. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Now, of course, it's always perfectly possible that this is, again, if we're, if we're, again, if we're following the interpretation that this isn't actually happening, if we're trying to find some means of interpreting this as something other than fantasy, which we have to kind of use this creative philosophical interpretation for things like the tree growing out of a knot, because that one's more difficult to explain in the case of just, you know, him going out in the middle of the night while in a sleepy state, grabbing berries and grabbing needles and scattering around his floor so as to make the fantasy more real. Harder to explain a tree that way unless you just kind of set the sapling there and is just kind of imagining and going through the routine of cutting it to again make it more real. Yeah. But there's other scenes, there's other scenes too that involve a certain degree of interpretation. Um, there are at least, as you discussed, two moments of violence where the book takes pains to say it's impractical and unrealistic that he could have been able to do that. Now, those are one of the first time when he destroys the living room, that's Connor himself looking at shock at what happened. So whoever knows, he certainly has the scuffs on his knuckles. He certainly has the blood on the back of his hand. The second time ever was his teacher who presumably has seen acts of fights between children before and is shocked and appalled that any one person, much less a child could have done what Connor apparently, according to all witness accounts did to Harry. Um, I think that that could very well also be kind of explained by schoolyard fights are ritualized, I would say. Mm -hmm. Um, And I mean, even a lot of bar fights and things like that, a lot of fights that are for usually no good reason, but essentially a show of strength, a show of machismo, something like that are, you know, have a set of rules that most people follow. And if right. you don't follow those rules, it's a completely different thing. And, you know, given your profession, I'm sure that there are barroom <laughs> brawls that, you know, people are charged with assault. And sometimes it's just sort of thrown out because, OK, he punched him and he punched him. And, you know, there are some bruises, but kind of whatever. But, you know, if somebody, um, you know, breaks a beer bottle and, and stabs somebody in the stomach, that might be attempted murder, and they're essentially the same thing. You know, they're both a barroom brawl or, you know, a, a bar fight, or, and one just doesn't follow the semi-accepted rules of what a bar fight is. You know, a bar fight is, you, you know, you, you punch somebody a couple of times until somebody just sort of decides that it's done, rather than somebody ends up in the hospital or possibly dead. And right. so I guess my concept of the reality 
of what this fight was with his bully is he was trying to cause damage rather than a schoolyard fight. You know, he wasn't punching, you know, this kid a couple of times and shoving him. He knocked him over and was bashing his head against the floor. Sure. I very much agree. Most fights, practically speaking, when someone's in some degree of lucid state are about establishing a degree of dominance or pecking order of where your purpose is more to represent to those around you and represent to yourself rather than is to necessarily inflict permanent harm. Connor seems to be representing more the case of like someone who's getting in a fight while on angel dust in the sense that he <laughs> has so fully... <laughs> Come on, there's, a, there's an element of that. No, no, I, I perfectly agree and, and things like that. It just it just sounds like you're going out of like a 90s uh, after school special. You know, kids, don't take angel dust because you could end <laughs> up just horribly naming one of your classmates because all reason goes out the window. I don't know what the little children are doing nowadays. It's perfectly possible they're huffing pig tranquilizers. I'm not one to judge. However, the example of a person who's in a very much intoxicated or divorced from reality state of mind, as you said, it limits the degree of conscious control that we put on their actions. Or Connor has so fully divorced the monster from himself, assuming, again, the monster isn't real, that he's able to rationalize what occurs around him and what he does based on the act that he's not doing it. And with that kind of mindset, with that kind of, you know, Milgram experiment in terms of I'm not inflicting the violence, someone else is telling me to do it or someone else is guiding me through it, there's no limit to what harm a person could accomplish. And if we indeed believe that Connor's just gone a bit off his rocker as a necessary part of coping with grief, his scale of harm he's capable of is impressive beyond any rational degree. Yeah. Um, I also kind of want to bring up, since you touched on the Milgram experiment, is that... uh, the conclusions that people usually draw from the experiment are often incorrect because sure, very much so. Um, well, 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 let's explain briefly what the Milgram experiment is for our various listeners. Um, so very briefly, um, basically, the uh, set of scientists or people in scientific garb uh, mm-hmm. had one or a couple of people in a room, and the uh, experimentee in question was basically given um, options such that he could shock somebody else that he could either see or see video of or something like that and mostly just here okay yeah this was probably reasonably back in the days where audio recordings were a little bit easier than video recordings things like that anyway um and so the researcher, person in lab garb, whatever, would try and convince the uh, experimentee, the su- uh, not re- sort of the subject, um, to inflict pain on a second person. Because notably, the second person was in on the experiment. They were a paid or hired actor, or actually participant in the experiment. But the idea being is that they would be, they would be the person who was actually being tested, the random Jew off the street, was convinced that they were the ones that were helping with the experiment. It was the person they were zapping that was actually the experimental subject. And so they would ask them questions, and every time they got a question wrong, they would increase essentially the voltage of the shock that was inflicted upon them, with the dials clearly labeled by how strong they were, and even with little warning messages as they got to certain points. And uh, as you were saying, eventually the uh, person who the uh, actual experimental subject thought was being tested would complain would either refuse to continue to participate or would complain that they were getting hurt. And it, it and wasn't that eventually. It was a f- actually fairly quickly. Fairly and quickly, yeah. 
that that people were uncomfortable with inflicting harm on somebody else, even if it was for science or, you know, mostly explained away. And they had to use more and more uh, tactics to try and get them to inflict harm on somebody else. And basically, they could often eventually convince them to do it. But it wasn't in 100% of cases. There were, there were many people that were just like, no, I, I'm not going to just shock somebody else. I, you know, I see nothing valid about it. Um, and, but there were cases that they could convince somebody to do it. But it was very rare that um, some Joe off the street would willingly just shock somebody else. Um, but, there, you know, there were people that they could convince, and that was sort of the punchline that everybody went with for a very long time. Uh, Mil- and Milgram, when he published the studies, was the one publishing forth that he convinced the majority of people to do it, and even started mastering the language necessary to persuade more people to do it. He found that one of the key things he had to do was not tell people, you don't have a choice, you have to do this. It was to lecture them about how important the experiment was about how necessary it was to happen, about how valuable the results were, about how good this was for the common, for mankind, that this experiment be completed. And when he went that route, a far larger percentage would continue to perform. That typically, whenever they reached the point of saying, you don't have a choice, you have to do this now, people would naturally resist. But when they were subverted and convincing them that, well, I'm just serving the public good by doing this, people were much more inclined to get in line. But it's recently been alleged that Milgram may have exaggerated his findings, particularly with not being as willing to report those who opted out very early. So it leaves a lot of the experiment in debate. But it's a common it's a common experimental citing point for the ability to convince people to do things so long as you're able to divorce them from the experiment, yes. making them just a, a cog in the machine. Yeah. But it seems like we're both coming kind of coming to the conclusion that our preferred interpretation, or at least one that's fun to debate about, is that much of what Connor is seeing is a product of his own mind in terms of him creating another entity for part of his coping, for part of his overcoming the uh, world around him that's outside of his control. I mean, I guess I think it's a much more interesting interpretation because sort of the other side is kind of like a deus ex machina where, you know, he's sort of going about his life in this external force makes him open up and makes him deal with his mother's death. And, and it's just a completely different ancient entity and it just sort of does it for him. Um, whereas him finding some reserve within himself or, you know, subverting what he thinks is necessary to come from without, you know, the, the male, uh, role model to look up to or what he thinks that, you know, that person would do, I think is a much more interesting view of the character rather than a weird prophet. And it's well explainable too, both in the figure the monster shows up in and also the moments that he appears. I mean, the fact that he shows up at the yew tree, we see clearly was something that his mom had for years drilled into him as being very important to her as a key aspect of their home and of their shared experience. Even the few moments that we have of her, she spends almost every scene saying, hey, isn't that a yew tree? Look at that yew tree. Isn't it, isn't it fun that the yew tree is producing my medicine? So clearly it was a key part of their relationship for a potentially long period of time. And then the monster, just by happenstance, appears to show up at every key moment of when he's confronting an issue of pain or confronting an issue of difficulty, when his grandmother first appears, when his father essentially lets him down, when his bully has found the most sadistic way possible to shatter him again, once again. And then, of course, at the very end, when 
he's in desperate need to bring all of these to separate lessons that he, separate lessons in his own knowledge together for uh, being willing to uh, come to terms with his grief. So, I mean, part of the fun of debating this and part of the fun of this particular form of subject matter is that there isn't meant to be a really clear answer. It's meant to be more of a setting than it is to be a clear solution or clear explanation for what's happening. Clearly, genre... we're not set up to teach high school English, because if you were, there would be a clear answer and there would be a clear uh, thing that you needed to pick out of this. So, And, and as said, the point of this book is not to necessarily have clear lessons. The monster recoils and mocks him for the idea that there is a clear lesson in niceness to draw out of this. As much of this book intends to be a philosophical a philosophical exploration of trying to convince somebody that having multiple views at the same time is not only perfectly valid, it's perfectly human. And coming to terms with that is a key aspect of moving on with your life. Yeah, it's an it's, important part of training in your life. It's a, it's a cone. Uh, I, I love that we, we, we embraced this book as a cone in the last episode because <laughs> it's so damn true. Um, but, I mean, there's a wonderful genre of literature called uh, magical realism, which very much explores these themes of where it's magic bleeding into the world that we're constantly in the debate of whether it's merely through the eyes of the character or actually an example of magic being on the margins but hidden from our, our normal conscious eye. Of where books almost purposely rarely answer the question of whether it's real or not. It's just the setting. It's just an interesting way of exploring other themes. So would you call the Dresden Files one of those, or is that more of the obvious, like, this is what it is. I mean, because you could relate, you know, some of the bad characters to drug dealers or gangs or whatever. But I feel like that might be a little bit more on the side of this is legit magic. Yeah, I, I felt Dresden Files was a bit more pie in the face. Welcome to the world of magic, son. Okay. Um, whereas Pan's Labyrinth would be, a, well, I'm more inclined with Pan's Labyrinth to think she's just making it all up, too. But it's fun to think of it both ways as well. <laughs> Yeah, that reminds me of a TV show that I started watching that I gave up because it was, in some ways, impressively bad, called Magicians, mm -hmm. um, which was a little bit more on the, you know, we're not really sure where the magic lies. It's sort of a, maybe a more adult version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, it, it, it's a hard thing to do on a television show. It's hard to keep that question going for too long in a multi-episode format. So you think eventually your audience is going to start getting frustrated, or you yourself as the writer will start getting frustrated having to be willfully ambiguous about it for more than 10 hours. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I think this is definitely much more, again, on the side of, you know, magic is actually real. But I think there are a couple more questions. Um, and I will say to our couple of listeners that I don't particularly recommend this show. And if sexual violence is not your cup of tea, I recommend you stay away from it. You know, as a person who watches and enjoys Game of Thrones, I can't say sexual violence is my cup of tea, but I'm apparently willing to tolerate it for, enjoy for enjoyment's sake. Yeah, th this is a little different, I would say, in, in terms of sexual violence, but... Uh, that that's a uh, debate for a different time. Dif different time, different shows. Yeah. W one one uh, fun topic for debate. We, we kind of teased into here that the monster seemed in some ways to be a creation of Connors because he doesn't have much in the way of a support network. So it might be fun to talk about what his support network is, or for that matter, definitely isn't. One character we kind of really left behind and didn't really talk about much in the last episode is Connors' dad, which... 
I suppose is a certain degree inevitable because he is a human void of a character. Yeah, I, I think that his dad is very much the character that, you know, swoops in and you expect so much of him and you are disappointed every single time you Connor interacts with him. And, you know, the, the hope is still sort of there and there and there. And he has another interaction and they're like two or three. And every time you just want, you know, that one thing to happen and it just doesn't, you know, the first time he comes over and he, he has a new family in America and he comes over and to, to England and, you know, sees Connor for the first time and you expect him, Oh, well, your, your mom's dying. Well, then I'm going to take you back to America and, you know, we'll, we'll be a family again. And he doesn't do that. And then you don't expect it the next time. But the next time, Connor's having more trouble with his grandma and then school. And then you expect his father to step up to the plate and say, you know, maybe try and deal with your grief this way. I know it's hard. And that doesn't happen. And then his mom takes a turn for the worse. And then, okay, well, you know, his his dad's in the country and his mom's really doing poorly, you know, he'll stay for his mother's death because, you know, his child's undergoing trauma. And it's like, well, you know, his mom took a turn for the worse and, you know, I'll try and be back as soon as I can, but my flight's leaving and, you know, it's kind of expensive to rebook. And, you know, they have those, those reclining seats that I like, and I got a fire exit uh, row and a little bit extra leg room, but I'll, I'll totally be back sometime. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a question of, it's a real demonstrative of his priorities that he decides to fly home because his new daughter has the sniffles. And that clearly holds priority over the fact that your ex-wife is dying and your son is in this state of profound trauma and grief. That you're going to go fly back overseas because someone's blowing a bit of a snot bubble. Yeah. Um, I, I guess his dad felt a little bit more of a caricature. Very much so. It's kind of hard to even really talk about him because his role is to not be there. His, his, his role is to be built up, in, as you said, built up in heroic tones. Connor's clearly assisting with him. My dad is coming. This is great. He's been away, but he'll come back. He'll fix this. He'll save me from the evil tyrant that is my, that is my grandmother. He'll find a way to help my, restore my mom to health. And then he shows up doesn't even really speak in an accent that Connor even recognizes anymore, offers him pizza that Connor doesn't like, and finds immediate way to exit stage right. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the other side is we're in some ways probably both approaching this from relatively normal families where we had, you know, at least some vague parental figure that, that mm -hmm. wasn't a deadbeat that vaguely wanted to participate in our lives, and so it's a little baffling that this would be the response of his father, but I'm sure there are people out there that it's just like, oh, yeah, you know, this isn't surprising. This is, you know, parents do this. It, it's interesting to debate what the book's perspective on it is, too, because, you know, each of the stories appear at a key moment in terms of co helping Connor come to terms with what's occurred and come to terms with various conflicting and seemingly contradictory events. And the story that emerges once he's dealing with his father, just very much letting him down and kind of abandoning him in what's going on, is the story of the apothecary, of the uh, apothecary 
ultimately refusing to help the priest and his daughters. Did you see his, I mean, with the first story, it seemed pretty clear that his grandmother was the one cast in the role of the, uh, the, the quote-unquote evil witch queen. Who the the, the step-grandmother that wants to marry her grandson? Step-grandson? Yeah, that uh, one. Yes, that one. <laughs> um, I might as well provide the necessary detail. It seems like she's being put in that role, but by Connor, by no one else. Whereas in the Apothecary story, it seems like his dad is in some ways being placed in the role of the Apothecary, who, like with the Evil Queen, the monster notably steps in to defend from Connor's uh, immediate split-second judging reaction. Um, Yeah, I guess I don't know which I would put his father in. I feel like the pastor might fit a little bit, you know, too well in terms of, like, you know, his daughters are sick. Mm. Um, And... Again, we, we also have that problem of an imperfect narrator because, you know, his daughter is sick and we're sort of assuming sniffles, but, you know, let's say he's in the awful situation of his young daughter has pneumonia and is hospitalized and his ex-wife is dying. That's, you know, an unmanageable choice, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, we're, I feel like we should reference Sophie's choice at least once during this, but we're exploring broad philosophical themes in this show. Yeah. But I mean, how would you, how would you choose whether to be at the side of your dying ex-wife or your child who's sick? I mean, how sick does your child have to be to make that choice? Mm -hmm. And I feel like in some ways the book dilutes that by, I if I remember correctly, making it pretty clear that he's maybe just putting up a good face for Connor, but he pretty clearly poo-poos how sick his daughter is. He just blames his uh, his new wife for her overreaction to it. Oh, I, I guess my concept of that was Connor's trying to demonize his father, sure. and uh, I don't know what the relationship would be there, but his father's new wife, and basically say he's completely unreliable and I need to rely on myself where the truth might be a little bit closer to something that at least many readers would consider more reasonable. All right. Well, let's actually debate this for a second. So it seems like we, we might have had a little bit of a disagreement about whether Connor's dad's being cast in the role of the apothecary or the pastor. Um, in terms of the apothecary, I was interpreting it as his dad because of how his selfishness was a key aspect of his character that he's a healer, he's got the solution to problems, but he willfully upholds them for his own benefit. And when he has the opportunity at the end to potentially correct the issue, to provide the medicinal panacea cure-all to fix the problem, he refuses it and abandons him because the other individual has lost faith in his view. I kind of saw that very much as Connor's own recommendations about his dad and how much he, by the end of the story, casts that guy as the villain, as the one who refused to fix the problem, refused to use his arts for the, to help other people, and was only focused on his own selfish ends. That kind of very much wanted to cast him as the bad guy. Um, whereas um, for the pastor, what would you say would, would be the features of him? I mean, he clearly has the children. He clearly has the, the war in between himself between the idea of uh, protecting his daughters versus maintaining his, I suppose, faith in that case would be Connor, if that was the example you're going with. Um, I, I, I guess I was just making the parallel that the 
pastor had two sick daughters and was willing to give up everything for his sick children, no matter what. And his father has a sick daughter that he's giving up on his other child, essentially, or the well-being of his other child and forsaking his duty as a parent. Okay. And perhaps they, perhaps both these characters then have aspects of uh, the uh, focus of his particular attention right then. Yeah, I mean, I guess the turnaround of the apothecary in some ways to be cast in a better light and also say, well, there's nothing I can do for you because you've lost belief and you've lost what makes you you doesn't really fit with my concept of what his father is doing. Um, at least the, the selfish part sort of makes sense, but there's none of that second part of the story. Okay. Whereas with the first story and his grandmother, you can see sort of how the reveal of the story makes sense in the application to his grandmother. And it could also apply in support of your theory, the idea that the ultimate destruction that the monster, the stand-in for Connor, uh, chooses to inflict is upon the pastor in his house. Right, and so he's basically writing his father out of his life, or his father's written himself out of his life, and he's internally basically burning that bridge because because it, what his father is supposed to do, just he didn't. And so he can't rely and maintain that relationship. By that logic, that's putting uh, the concept of religious faith on equal merit, or at least in the same role as loyalty and duty to your family. Because uh, that's what the pastor is ultimately abandoning for the sake of trying to protect his uh, new daughters. I don't think. I mean, I guess that makes sense to me. I, I don't know how, makes, how you feel about uh, you know I'm family loyalty and, and parenting. I'm agnostic here. I'm not losing much by giving up that particular subject. You're, you're agnostic on on family ties and, and parenting <laughs> and caring for young. No. That seems a little bit harsh, Spencer. But you know, yeah. I think I think own. you're using a little bit of interpretation beyond what that phrase is normally meant to be. Agnostic? Agnostic means without knowledge. Yeah, which is almost universally applied to the idea of religious faith, but we are getting off topic with that one, aren't we? Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> one, well, in terms of his father abandoning him from his life, we mentioned the idea of the monster being in many ways a stand-in for a parent figure and being a stand-in possibly for masculinity because he has no other male role models in his life. I mean, let's take that a little bit further. How do you feel about that as a concept, of the monster being essentially his stand-in parent figure because his dad is willfully out of the picture and his mom is well put it mildly very much under the weather um yeah i, I even if she wasn't under the weather I, I think it would still be an issue it would just well um to use a not not quite apt turn of phrase come to a head um with her sickness but i think it makes sense in many ways um and it i guess the more I think about it, the more it might explain my discomfort with the message um, that the monster seems to be giving. Basically, that violence is a, a sort of reasonable outlet, and you know, to a certain extent, uh, him meshing the feelings with inside of him is the goal rather than talking to the people around him and opening up, maybe understanding them a little bit, but 
sort of not putting those two halves together because this is his concept of masculinity. His mas concept of masculinity is strength, is power, is destruction, but it isn't vulnerability in some ways, or at least the vulnerability of being uh, comfortable with what's inside of you and stoic, which is kind of what happens in the end, rather than opening up to his grandmother, his friend Lily, her mom, all the people around him that clearly are there for him and care for him. It's an interesting interpretation because I kind of agree that from that point of view, the monster is what a child would create a parent or parental figure or parental role model to be when they've got no other guidance. Um, that you, I wouldn't put it so far as to say that he's feral, but the book takes pains to say that he's essentially been raising himself and caring for himself and doing the things that a parent would normally be there for for a long period of time. And by that logic, then, has kind of created this mentor, parental figure out of his own fantasy just because he has nothing else to turn to. And so, particularly early on, the parental figure may embody a certain degree of immaturity, may embody a certain degree of using violence to fix the problem, using violence as a moment of catharsis, it's because he doesn't have any frame of reference to know that there are more responsible, reasonable, and better ways to go about it. But yeah. There, there definitely seems to be a bit of an arc in often just how the monster himself treats and regards him. Early on, the monster is taunting. Its cruel smile is highlighted at several times. Its threats of violence upon him are the key aspects of its character. But by the end, when he is has told the monster his story, when right before the moment of when he's going to see his mother for the very last time... The book describes in detail as the monster picks him up and basically puts him in its own little nest and probably the most nurturing moment he has in the entire story. Um, so it makes one wonder, has the monster itself essentially gone in a narrative arc as Connor has matured, as Connor has come to terms with the idea of what is actually needed for healing and coping? Uh, has it grown as a parent figure as Connor himself has grown as a person? Um, or it's gone through all of the things that he expect a, that he expects of a parent. There's been discipline, there's been learning, there's been explanation, and then there's been uh, comfort and uh, a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so those might be sort of the major aspects that he's taking off in, I'm not sure in order, but sort of in order of a parental response. You know, if you do something, um, maybe you never did as a child anything, you know, outside the rules or, or something like that, there are a series of things that, that you and your parent might go through. So, you know, let's say you did something that was against the rules, but also dangerous. You know, I don't like running out into the street. Mm -hmm. So what would a series of parental reactions be? You know, there's surprise, there's mm -hmm. anger, discipline, mm -hmm. and then and nurturing. Yeah. You know, because if you have a relatively young child and you yell at them and reprimand them and punish them for doing something that is to their detriment, you also, you don't want them to do it again. You want that to be the big lesson. You want to explain why they're being reprimanded, so hopefully they don't do this again and harm themselves or something when, you're the as the parent, you're not around to make sure that they don't participate in this dangerous behavior. 
but you also want to comfort them and say, you know, you're okay now, like I'm watching you and, you know, I want you to be comfortable, but you need to take this lesson into account. One question I have is though is, do we think that the monster is necessarily encouraging violence or saying violence is a good thing or just kind of validating that Connor does it and then leaving him open to the consequences and leaving him open to learn from the consequences of doing it? I mean, he seemingly encourages him to violence when he destroys the uh, grandmother's room, but then he immediately leaves him to face the potential wrath or whatever may come from it occurring. That he seemingly directs him to violence with respect to the bully, but the ultimate lesson is, is that now he is visible to the entire world, but as a, uh, a horrible, grotesque entity. In some ways, I feel like the only character that actually in, directly says that violence will be condoned or forgiven is actually, in some ways, his mother. One, yep. of the last bits of advice, one of the last bits of advice that she gives him is that do what you need to do to come to terms with this. Be yep. violent. Be, be loud, angry as, be aggressive. as you want. Like, break things. Yeah, I, I didn't love that. I understand it. I mean, it's she clearly meant it as a profound statement of love that do what you need to do comes with grief and know that throughout whatever happened, I understand and support you. She's trying to provide, like you said, the various stages of teaching a lesson, various stages of helping, some, of um, teaching a certain, I wouldn't say discipline, but providing support, but in a way that she won't be there to go through the various aspects of it. She's trying to validate it in the future because she's not going to be present for each particular moment to guide him through it. Yeah, I, that's, but. I think, a very reasonable thought about it. I just, the concept itself of validating his, I, I think, detrimental and self-destructive behavior just feels wrong to me. And right. again, you know, we can't expect all the characters to be perfect. We can't expect, no. you know, the parents to be the ideal lesson givers and things like that and it's just sort of one of those things that i just don't like it because it's a young adult novel and i feel like it should have that this is the the moment that you should learn that letting people in that violence isn't okay that there are better ways to deal with grief and anger and and all of those raw emotions that happen with a given trauma which is ultimately i think the lesson that the one that he gets from the monster is the ultimate lesson of the story it just takes a long time to get there he goes through various stages he goes through various attempted coping mechanisms before he finds one that is actually healthy before he actually learns if there is an ultimate lesson of the book or at least the lesson that's individual to him that lets him move move past his nightmare uh I think in some ways the mom's advice that she provides, I think I talked about this a little last week, is perhaps a reflection of her own anger at her situation. Um, she's clearly trying to be supportive to Connor. She's clearly trying to indicate how much she loves him, but it may be bleeding in how much she herself is in rage and agony about what she's going through, about her, her own loss in terms of being separated from her son, but her own loss in terms of being quite soon removed from the world. Yeah, I, I think that's a very reasonable interpretation, and it's sort of one of those that she doesn't have the strength to be angry. She doesn't have the strength to take out her frustration on anything because she's so weak. And so when she sees the, the same frustration that she feels in Connor, him being able to let it out might be uh, a vicarious way of getting sure. 
her her own discomfort out. And it's a classic. It's a classic trope for parents and their children is that we we. It, I don't have kids, but for many parents, it's a, it's a classic uh, element of literature, element of media, that they try to find ways to live through their children, have their children either accomplish the dreams they were unsuccessful for or live out the fantasies that they can finally make reality. So do you uh, tell the rabbits hmm. about, you know, what's in the almanac and read to them from Wikipedia? No, he's been a rebellious teenager from, game, from day one. I've got no hope for him. <laughs> one other... One other parent figure, and it's probably the last effective parent figure we have in the story, is his, uh, his grandmother. And as much as I do actually like her character, as much as I feel like she's the ma- the mature side, she is going through the same through thing Connor is, but through a mature, more mature adult lens in terms of how she copes with it. She has certain elements of inconsistency and hypocrisy about her as well. And one of those I feel like is in a, how she accepts mortality, be it how she's able to seemingly do so in other people as part of her stoic duties as the adult, but has elements of not being as so willing to accept it about herself. Yeah, I, I think that, well, I think there are two things, and, and I know what you're hinting at, um, basically that, you know... <laughs> leaving it open, leaving it open, feel free to talk. 60s is the new, 50s is the new 60s, and um, that she has a career and that she's very career oriented and has her own house and, and is very much, uh, a strong independent woman who don't need no man kind of, uh, British grandmother, which seems diametrically opposed to that phrase. Mm-hmm. Um, which Connor points out. Yes. Um, that she's not very grandmotherly, but, and sort of very much leads into is she unwilling to accept her own mortality and I guess I'm of two minds here I think mm-hmm. that for the purposes of the story that you know it's a nice flip side to the coin that you have this very stoic woman that's very um, comfortable with herself that knows her place in the world has really driven her life to where she wants it to be being afraid of her own mortality and in some ways just not dealing with the mortality of her daughter in what people might say is a normal manner and really experiencing those feelings and just having everything set out and there are lists and there are things that she's taking care of so she can avoid dealing with the impending death of her daughter. Mm-hmm. On yeah, the other yeah. hand, yeah, she's like 60-ish. And is in some good years left in her. a society that has a reasonably socialized health care and could live for another 20 or 30 years. And at least a good chunk of them probably even reasonably keep up with Connor until he's an adult and out of the house. And so to say that she needs to confront her own mortality, I feel like is dealing her a really bad hand in terms of how people are living these days. Um, I mean, honestly, you know, we're coming up with issues economically with people trying to retire at 65, whereas 50 years ago, people retiring at 65, you know, wasn't going to be the same issue because they weren't going to live for another 20, 25 years in, you know, some reasonable amount of health. And so... In many ways, I, mean, I, I read this theory online as, oh, isn't this a fascinating point? But I only really ever see it as being hypocrisy maybe through Connor's lens, 
because as you said, it really would give her short shift as a person if she's just going you know, to expected to start dwelling on her own mortality once she reaches a certain point in life. It feels like a very individualized decision for each person to make and cope with as part of getting older and what they want to come to terms with or not, rather than something that she is in denial about if she's not choosing to live her life in quiet seclusion. Yeah, and I guess that sort of speaks to my experience growing up and, you know, very possibly yours. I don't know, like, the ages of your family, but my both of my grandmothers i think were reasonably into their either late 60s or early 70s when i was born mm-hmm. and so you know they weren't 60 ish when i was a teenager uh, one of them was close to 90 when she passed away when i was 13 so i mean you know very much the when Connor would be an adult if we were to, you know, line things up. And uh, my other grandmother was a couple years younger and, you know, was very active up until essentially towards my teenage and, and late teens and early adult years. And so I guess this concept of a grandparent that's facing the mortality is makes more sense to me but my grandparents were also 10 to 15 years her senior. As were, as were mine at that age. And just practically from a health standpoint, they typically encourage individuals who are reaching that age or at any age to maintain an active, healthy, engaging lifestyle because you will live longer if you do that. Yeah, I if feel like I've just... seen those ads with like two bathtubs about encouraging an, an active no, lifestyle. No, no. Well, yes, but no, that's not the one I was specifically <laughs> referring to. That is an aspect of it, yes. Not the whole story, um, but practically speaking, if you choose to live your life obsessed with your mortality, you will likely bring it on sooner rather than later. I think in some ways Connor's pointing out some kind of hypocrisy or wrongness about her here is in some ways him trying to knock her out of the role of being a possible parent figure of knocking her out of the role of being somebody that can actually step in as a guardian, someone who can embrace the youth necessary to care for a younger person, just because he doesn't want her ever to see her in that role. He wants her to be the distant grandmother. He wants her to be removed from active life and particularly removed from his life, because the more that she's involved, the more she represents how much his current life is ending, and she will be the new future for it. Practically speaking, he'll be a lot better off if she isn't someone who's obsessed with her own mortality and embrace that grandmotherly style that he seems to have uh, stereotyped into being because she is going to be the sole parent, parent figure in his life very soon, but he just doesn't want to have to accept that yet. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's sort of very weird. It's sort of one of those things that you want to know what happened previously to these characters to end up in this situation. Cause it's sort of a really weird situation that everybody's in. And I mean, I guess you could sort of make assumptions and, and figure out like what's been going on, but even those assumptions in my mind don't really make sense. And so in some ways this is a great book to sort of really go in depth, but I feel like there are just huge weird questions that I think the answers are, at least for Connor's dad, that he's just a shitty person. And we just need to accept that because otherwise the book really makes no sense in how that character is presented. I mean, the monster is validating both the decisions of the pastor and of the, um, the apothecary. It's not saying either one are bad people. It's 
built on trying to frame everybody in the story and everybody, everybody in its stories as being shades of gray. So if the monster is indeed Connor's consciousness, it doesn't seem to be willing to perfectly frame his dad as being evil, I guess because practically you never want to frame your parents as being evil. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It, it's just sort of hard to mesh the actions of his father with yeah. not just being a pretty awful person. But yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, we can say that if the monster is a manifestation of the of Connor sort of accepting him, I guess, being inducted to being more of an adult and dealing with reality, then that's sort of a reasonable way of going about things and not completing, completely writing off his father for the rest of his life. Right. But he has, he has conflicting priorities. Now he has conflicting loyalties. He has conflicting responsibilities and he's trying to come to terms with those and balance them how he can he still comes across as one hell of a shithead in the book, though. Yeah. We see everything through Connor's perspective and Connor's trauma. He's what we care about. We don't see what's going on with his family to know what's really happening over there. Exactly. But I, I would say the same thing is very much true of his grandmother, where it's just oh, yeah. one of those things where her daughter has had cancer for at least a year, and she's basically been absent from her grandson's life, that she lives close enough to drop him off to school. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed like she'd been around, but never been playing this significant of a role. Though I wonder how much of that was his mom's decision. Because it seems like at several times the grandmother strongly disagrees with how his mother's going about, I'll just call it the Connor situation. She even straight up says at one point that your mother needs to have a conversation with you. It feels like she in some ways had her mom her daughter had been resisting her playing an act, the, the grandmother playing a very active role, taking over more duties. And the grandmother maybe may eventually had to just kind of force herself into the equation of being the necessary adult in the room as things were inevitably getting worse. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's one of those things where the things that often aren't discussed in a book, once you start delving in a little bit deeper, you start going like, wait a minute, how does that work if this is what's happening? Um, you know, we don't right. have armies moving thousands upon thousands of miles in a day, but we do have a, presumably a house and rent and bills and getting to school and making lunches and buying groceries and sort of all of these things that you could sort of talk your way into and imagine how a... 12, 13 year old, I don't remember exactly how old Connor is, but like you could imagine how he could functionally accomplish a lot of these things and maybe systems that his mother might have set up or something like that. But at a certain point, if his mother is in and out of the hospital, barely functional, and there's a functional adult that's presumably fairly well off in the picture, why on earth are all these sort of coping, barely limping along mechanisms being applied to what has a very, or fairly straightforward and and reasonable solution? So it's like we have to infer that she and her, uh, or Connor's mother and his grandmother don't have a good relationship. 
possible. They seem like rather different people. His mother seems to be wrapped up a lot more whimsy than the grandmother was practically capable of. Yeah, but I feel like just because a parent and child are different people doesn't mean that they're going to have a bad relationship or, you know, aren't able to get along. No, no, not at all, though it could mean that there was a certain degree of tension between them. I mean, the mere fact that her dad's absent from the equation raises some questions. And her mom, as just a matter of going about her life, I mean, it's, I, I don't think a lot of what she is is just merely a coping mechanism from what her daughter's going through in terms of the rigidity that she carries out her life and her work. I think that's a, just a key aspect of her character as well. That is a bit of a profound difference in terms of the day-to-day -day bearing of her compared to what we see of the mom, who seems to be very much tied into these stories, these fantasies. I can't imagine that Connor's close connection to this fantasy world is merely something that he created for himself. I think in some ways he's probably drawing from his own raising by his mom. Sure. I, I, that's perfectly reasonable. I just, I feel like there, there's no good answer to... Nah, there isn't you know, why certain people don't have different roles in the book other than it's necessary for the story that the book wants to tell, which, you know, isn't the end of the world. You know, it, it's no, it well-written, it's a decent story, it's fun to talk about, but there are definitely details that the book starts to crumble under scrutiny with. And then it becomes a practical question of how much we're willing to give unreliable narrator as an explanation um, for some of the whether they're crumblings or just merely gaps in our knowledge. I mean, from Connor's perspective, the house is being perfectly well cared for. He's perfectly well able to manage. But is that just merely his perspective on the issues? He's trying to make sure everything remains some degree of normal, at least in his own head. Or is it actually decaying around the rafters and the grandmother's desperately coming in to fix things as they are already, already in the process of falling apart? Who knows? Yeah. It's hard I to ever say with an unreliable narrator. That's true. It, it would sort of be an interesting sequel to have Connor as an adult retell the story. That actually would be fascinating. Um, it, it reminds me of uh, one of my ex-girlfriends had a bit more of a rough childhood and her parents were working a lot or not quite in the picture as much. And so she spent a lot of her childhood helping raise her sister who's a couple years younger. And so she would do a lot of cooking and, you know, sort of the cooking that essentially a child could do. So, you know, like instant mashed potatoes and things like that. And so, you know, it was vaguely functional, but in that time, she probably thought that she was doing a good job. And for someone her age, she was doing an incredible job. But looking back and as an adult, she had different eyes to assess the situation. And so I think that having a more complete picture as, an, as adults reading this book, we have very different concepts than somebody that age might have as to sort of what's going on and the state of everything. And so as we sort of discussed, like there are a lot, or as I mentioned before, like there are a lot of functional things that sort of wouldn't work out. And so, you know, maybe the bills aren't getting paid. Maybe there are lots of overdue notices that are sort of piling up that the grandmother doesn't know about. And so once she knows about, she's like, all right, well, you know, your mom has to talk to you about this because you're going to come to live with me because 
I didn't realize that stuff was this bad. And you're about to be foreclosed on. Exactly. And so Connor has no idea that this is really going on. And then because this is in the background in a conversation between his mother and his grandmother, because his mother's trying to like keep as much normalcy around as possible because she's trying to shield her son from the walls crumbling in. Right. And she's literally a real estate agent. She could be arranging the house for short sale. It's part of the reason she needs to move him out pretty quickly. We don't know. We have a very limit. Our field of reference, our vision to the story is through the eyes of a 13-year-old. We're not getting that, that wide angle of the lens. Yeah. But moving on to another topic that I found interesting. Um, in terms of characters that almost come across as parody, in terms of you almost hope they don't exist in the real world, I never had a bully like Harry. Did you ever have someone that, that was that literally sadistic in high school or middle school? No. I, or if I did, I mostly erased them from my memory. Like It was nothing so traumatizing or unpleasant. Um, I definitely had some bullies and people that I didn't get along with and didn't like. But for the most part, they were, I don't know, fairly run-of-the-mill and wouldn't wouldn't make it into a, a chapter of, of my autobiography. Well, I suppose we can count our blessings there, which makes it all the more interesting for how incredibly malevolent Harry is. There are several times in this book I almost read it as if Connor's looking forward to him. Did you get an edge of that when you were reading? Yeah, I, I definitely feel like Connor was looking forward to it, and I think this is sort of the perfect example of any attention is good attention when you're starved for it. Right. And it also seemed a little weird how, again, this is sort of, it'd be nice to know what happened previously or what actually was happening, his whole relationship with Lily, because that was clearly a source of relationship and attention that was sort of hand-wavy explained away. But basically there, he's almost invisible or not visible in a way that he wants. And so he looks forward to the torment that he gets from his bully. It's sort of um, a lot of uh, pets will crave bad attention. So, you know, if you only beat a dog, it will seek that out. And the same thing with cats and, and even children, you know, children will act out. If all the attention that they get is negative, they will seek out that negative attention because as essentially pack animals, attention of a negative sort is better than none at all. Right. I feel like in some ways that uh, Connor's isolation comes from three different areas, one of which is definitely self-inflicted. I mean, as a result of his depression, as a result of his grief, he is driving away what limited support network he has in terms of his constant hostile reaction to his grandmother and stereotyping her as the evil queen in terms of trying to shatter his friendship with Lily um, based on what may or may not have even been her fault, necessarily. Um, ooh, 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 ooh. I just had a thought that could tie a couple of things together. Please, that, Go on, we'll come back to mine. What if Lily is the source of his um, productive dreams and he's uncomfortable with the fact that there's this other impingement on his emotional and 
thought processes that isn't about his mom dying. It's about him wanting to do dirty things to his childhood friend. And so he's pushing her away as both a consequence of him being uncomfortable with the changes in his life, but also things that he shouldn't be feeling while his mother's dying. I feel like we've wandered fully now into my freshman year German philosophy class. Uh, I think it is an interesting point to debate, though. I mean, Connor takes a lot of pains early in the story to say that she's just a friend. I don't even see her as a girl. I mean, how could I see her as a girl? She was a sheep in the same play as me. Whereas I think, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a stereotype. I think it's a certain degree of truth to it that girls mature a little bit faster with respect to the relationship aspect of things. And when she gives him that letter at the end, I think it doesn't even describe her as blushing in some ways as he looks at the note and looks back at her. I think so. That would be reasonable to uh, me. Uh, I, there definitely is the possibility that their relationship, I think, is due to his immaturity, due to what he's going through, remains on a platonic level throughout the story, at least in his conscious mind. Whether he's having unconscious thoughts about her, whether he's having fantasies in the evening, we don't have any frame of reference to say. It's a fun interpretation to tie into the, what we've previously been debating. But it seems like the kind of relationship that with not much effort could transition to being romantic, as many kind of long-term friendships like that can do. Or so, completely not, because that's super creepy. It, who the hell knows? It's <laughs> up, up to them once they reach a mature enough level that they can actually consider it. And Connor is consent. in no way there yet in the story. Um, just finishing up my thought about the other things that were in her isolated. One, very much self-inflicted. Two, I think it's in some ways a result of school policy. It feel like, feels like in some ways that the school, in recognition for what he's going through as the kid with a dying mom, has essentially put forth a uh, policy of just hands off. Just leave him be. He needs to cope. Don't put any extra pressure on him. Don't. Let's treat him with kid gloves throughout always going through this. Which, as we see over the course of the story from Connor's perspective, is probably the worst possible thing they could have done, but with good intentions. And the third is just kind of a natural human reaction to watching a train, watching a car wreck happen. Is that if you see someone that's in a lot of pain, a lot of trauma, or something that's inherently wrong, a natural human impulse is to turn away from it and acknowledge, not acknowledge it is there as part of maintaining your own normality. Oh, um, I, I, that's interesting because I thought you were going to say actually well, the complete t- opposite I'm, that you I'm can't tying help. it to Harry at the end. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I would say Harry then is valuable to Connor just because he is the one that doesn't fall into any of those categories. I mean, Connor can't push him away. He's a bully. He's a bully that's outside of Connor's control. He's the golden boy. So he's immune to any school policies and is able to escape any degree of blame. And he's a proven malevolent sadist. So he's not going to respond to maybe the natural human impulse to not want to, confront or deal with somebody else's trauma um but despite it being somewhat counterintuitive it seems like connor appreciates that just just because as you said it's not only a degree of detention it's a maintaining of normality that he's not getting from anywhere else and he also mentions fairly often that he feels like he should be punished and so this might be self-flagellation in some ways yeah, that throughout the story that he's desperate for the world to punish him for the guilty nightmare that he keeps having over and over again. And so here is his fury embodied. Here is what will rend him for God's will for his sins against man. And Harry's only too willing to fulfill that role and seems to realize it later in the story and so 
decides to go about it in the most effective way possible by not giving him what he's so desperately needing and craving. Yeah, that's an interesting scene. Um, And it's also interesting to me that Harry doesn't have a story, he just has violence in return. Oh, yeah. I mean, we talked about our characters being tropes. Harry's a straight-up trope. He doesn't have depth. He doesn't have pur- his purpose is to be his purpose is to help Connor's narrative arc. His purpose is to serve a necessary end to, for Connor to get from point A to point C. And... So he's the younglings. Sorry, explain that one to me. He's the uh, recipient of the violence for a character to oh, progress yeah. from point A to point B. I mean, they're they're slightly different. Did you just make an Anakin Skywalker reference that I didn't catch? Yeah, the younglings. Thank you. Sorry. Took me a second. Tired. That's okay. I figure you'd appreciate some prequel memes. No, no, actually, but thank you for trying. No, fair enough. Mm-hmm. I thought those were your preferred Star Wars. Guess not. You you hurt me, sir. You hurt me. <laughs> um, uh, but, but yeah, I, I think that there are parts of the story that are there for character progression and it's sort of reasonable because this should be a shorter story given that it is young adult. And so there are aspects and plot points and characters that are there for the development of something else. And as an adult reader, sometimes you want more, but again, this is young adult. And so we just sort of need to accept that these are things. And it wouldn't necessarily be a weakness in adult literature either. I mean, it's, it, it's not trying to tell the story of the world that he is in. It's not trying to tell the story of any of those characters. It's meant to be a very personal tale. I mean, if we're correct in terms of our interpretation that the magic isn't actually happening, then everything that's happening is purely through the mind and perspective of this one little 13-year-old boy. And that's the story it wants to tell. It wants to be about his, I can't really call it a hero's journey, though it kind of goes through some aspects of the arc, but his journey to, to, grow, to adulthood, his journey to maturity and coming to terms with grief, Everything else is just, you know, dress is just wall dressing to that. Yeah. That's the only story it wants to tell. And it is only in the mind of someone that age that they feel like they would be mature at the end of this book. <laughs> it's it's an interesting point to end the story because it's, it's very effective from a, a narrative arc. It's very effective from a climactic moment. But God, I'd like to know what happens two days after. Yeah, it, it'd be nice to know. What, what happens afterwards. And actually, I, w- I would love for this and probably a number of other books to be written again uh, from the perspective that it's an adult looking back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, huh. I mean, it could definitely be a fascinating read uh, to see him analyze his own experiences of what he went through and what he, if we're correct, created to make, a, to make his own uh, growth happen. Yeah. All right. Well, I thought I think we have now covered three or so hours of material talking about this 200-page book. Um, it has definitely been fun to talk about, and I feel like there's probably more there. But do we have any other big themes to discuss tonight, or should we plot our course for the next book we're going to talk about? I think uh, moving on, I, I think is a good thing, and, and less it, it, actually, there was one topic that uh, we sort of briefly discussed at oh, the last it, episode. It, I was going to make a wonderful pun off moving on being the key theme of the book and us finally realizing it. Okay, fine. What, what are you going to do? Um, well, we, we sort of briefly mentioned that 
you know, you had the experience of, of a close family member being diagnosed with cancer. How did you feel reading this book? Oh, I mean, it was one of the things of where I re- uh, a friend sent me this book uh, about a couple Christmases before I went through that particular thing. And so I had read it and had quite enjoyed it. Uh, again, it's always delightful to be in a corner on Christmas, still with your Santa hat on, crying with your parents baffled as to what, as to, as to what particularly has happened and what that friend sent you. Um, but it was definitely a book that was in the back of my mind as um, my family was going through that. Which led to the practical question that we were debating before about, is this a good, when is the appropriate timing for this book in terms of giving it to someone who's going through a similar level of grief? Is it something you want to try to inoculate them with in advance? You know, as much children and young adult literature is in terms of helping giving them the framework and the guidance to go out into the real world on their own. Is it something you give them to in the moment as a degree of panacea? Or is it something that you give them afterwards as a means of coping? I... I think we kind of agreed that giving them in the moment is probably presumptuous and dangerous as shit. Uh, But the other two can work out quite well. And, you know, it was, to a certain degree, a comforting book in the back of my head as my my, my family was going through it. Yeah. Uh, Ultimately, in our case, everything worked out perfectly wonderfully, um, which does often not how those stories end. Yeah. uh, I know sort of my own familial experience with it was in some ways weird. It was sort of almost like a, Oh, by the way, this is happening. And yeah, it's fine. And that was like a couple of weeks ago. So don't worry about it. It's like, uh, wh- what? Uh, oh, okay. Um, I guess that's great. And you know, I'll check in and make sure everything's okay. And, uh, thanks. But I guess my family is in many ways a little bit more private, even, between um, like close family members. So I talk to my mom fairly often. Um, and now that we're, I guess, both adults and I feel like we have a lot more of an adult relationship, you know, I, I call her a couple times a week. We often text, stuff like that. And so many things just, we don't communicate as much or, you know, they don't seem super relevant. Um, so earlier this year in January, I had appendicitis and, um, I was t- like at some point in like the evening after like I had abdominal pain for a number of hours, I told my mom and, and I think I talked to her and I was like, yeah, you know, I'll probably go to the doctor and, you know, get it checked out. And so I did. And then, um, I went to the hospital and, and got uh, diagnosed. And so I was like texting her. I was like, Oh, Hey mom, I have appendicitis. I'm, you know, going to go into surgery for a couple of hours and, you know, I'll talk to you in the morning. And she was like, wait, what? Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to fly out and, and come see you and make sure you're okay. And I was just like, you're not going to get here until after I'm out of surgery. So, I mean, I guess, but like, why? And she's like, Oh, you know, I have to make sure you're okay. I was like, okay, thank you. And and, you know, basically I was out and home by the time she, she got here. And, and so it was like, a, eh, everything was fine. And I think I didn't tell any of my close friends or anybody else for months because it wasn't relevant in my mind. I, you definitely didn't tell me in the moment of it. But uh, yeah, and it's, it's interesting once we become adults, how much would have been a dramatic moment or an important moment that you want the entire world brought in for 
it's just really another Tuesday. Yeah. That, yeah, Dad, you know, got 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 a, got a bit of car wreck, fender bender. Yeah, I'm fine, you know. Yeah, I'm gonna take it in the repair shop. Yeah, I'm gonna check my hospital checked out. Just, it's amazing what we've just, you know, has become part of the normal background. Yeah. That's and as this as the book discuss, it's I guess a key aspect of becoming an adult is what may seem like world ending now is just another thing you come to terms with and move on for the next event to occur. Yeah. Life goes on. Yeah. And, and you, the uh, famous phrase, this too shall pass. <laughs> and it is a fundamental truth that life will continue on whether you wish it to or not. So you either participate or, well, you will participate in some shape or form. You might as well have an aspect of control over it. It's kind of like a kidney stone. <sighs> on that note. Uh, <laughs> what, what are we going to talk about next week, PJ? I mean, we, we talked uh, about going through the Bob verse, but I, being a uh, bit of a lazy, lazy, overly busy sort, and different, and on, on, <laughs> two conflicting thoughts there, but both true, uh, may not have enough time to get it done by next week. So yeah. perhaps we can propose a short story. No worries. Uh, you've been a busy little bait. Um, another quote from your favorite movie from the Roman era. Um, so I think, uh, there's another short story by Brandon Sanderson that I think I sent out along when we actually started out this podcast called Snapshot. It's a little bit more of a murder mystery with a little bit of, or a lot of sci-fi flavor and, um, a little bit of Brandon Sanderson's, uh, unique twists. Um, and I think that'll be a good, relatively short read as a little stopgap measure. Um, so you can tuck into, I guess, a 300-something page book um, that is We Are Legion, We Are Bob. Um, but the other thing that I would highly recommend is the reader on Audible is impressively good. So, uh, who's, do you know offhand who it's narrated by? Um, I do not know offhand who it is narrated by, but I do have this fancy thing next to me called a uh, phone that I'm listening to it on and it should have that information somewhere. I'm going to Google it so I can beat you to it. Uh, narrated by Ray Porter, it looks like. Huh. Yeah, that's what it says here. Don't know who that is, but apparently they do a great job. Um, yeah, so he, he narrates all of the uh, Baba first, and actually the same author, Dennis E. Taylor, has a new book out that came out really recently that I got. But um, yeah, I don't know if that's something that you do, listening to audiobooks, but it is a, I think, really good way to go with this. And as I remember, it's like a nine... Nine, it's a nine and a half hour listen. So depending on how much time you have in your commutes and uh, lovely Fort Lauderdale traffic. Um, it happens occasionally. I've got a few minutes. But yeah, I've, I've actually recently become quite fond of um, books on Audible or uh, certain podcast series just as a means of spending time. Be it if I'm at the gym or going on a long drive, it can be a great way to uh, fill the tedium with something interesting. Yeah, it's a little harder to take notes for a podcast while you're listening and doing work or something like that, but it is another way to consume the art form. 
there was a point for one of our other podcasts, the GOT of Questions podcast, of where I was list. I, I was on a drive and I didn't have time to watch the episode, so I was just listening to it and then pausing it to dictate notes. Not the best thing to do on a drive. I don't recommend it. So I will try to find a more productive way to do this one. You didn't have a uh, secretary or a dictaphone that you could uh, send out for transcription? Uh, if I tried to bill that to work, there probably would be trouble in terms of hiring it in my spare time. Maybe I could probably train the dog to write something down for me, but that's probably about the limit of my financial ability. Uh, yeah, you might be barking up the wrong tree there. Oh, dear Christ, sir. It's 11 o'clock where I am. <laughs> it's only 10.30. Stop complaining. I was rounding up. Anyway, so we have our target for next week. I'm actually really looking forward to reading another Brian, uh, Brandon Sanderson. Um, the first one was the uh, first. We were, Earlier in this series, we read, uh, was it We Are Legion? Was that the name of that one? Uh, I think it's just called Legion. Just Legion, but, that's right. Because We Are Legion is the Baba first book. That's it. That's why I've got it up right here. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a little confusing, a little bit frustrating. Um, and uh, we'll what? definitely return to that uh, now short story trilogy and maybe get a reprisal of our uh, third member, the uh, yeah, we, we've Josh. had several. We've had several other members of the various podcast team threaten to be back on or part of the show again, but they've kind of universally complained about the about the idea of us reading books because while we are just enjoy consuming them hundreds of pages at a time, apparently more normal, rational people who have lives and schedules find that a bit hard. So maybe we'll do a short story or two so we see if we can bring in a few uh, new blood to the equation and see how that works out. Yeah, a little bit more dipping your toe in the water rather than jumping the deep end. Uh, where's the fun in that? But, you know, we'll suffer through for their benefit. Yep. For the time being, however, BJ, in terms of people wanting to listen to us or ask questions, where could they find us? Um, they can find us loads of places. The main one is we have a website, mangumtalks.com, that has all of our content and podcasts, including Got Questions, a relatively new edition, Whiskey on the Weekend, which hopefully our second episode will come out shortly. Um as well as possibly a basketball-themed podcast that I do not know the name of that might be pending. <laughs> and uh, this series, Mangum Reads, um, are all there. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, which is apparently a thing that I'm not familiar with, is where, or wherever you get your podcasts, you can hopefully search for Mangum Reads and come up with our episodes. And we also have a subreddit, where you can post questions to any of the authors, get in touch with us, find all of our content, and generally make appreciable nuisances of yourself. And we definitely do appreciate it. We like your questions. The majority of our questions so far have been have come from various significant others who've been reading our books or listening to our podcasts in the background. But if anyone else on the internet would like to chip in with their uh, comments, questions, or general debates and themes they want us to go through, we are eager to listen and eager to bring them up. But for the time being, folks, it's always been a pleasure, and we're looking forward to uh, giving you more material next week. Sounds good, and uh, have a good night, everyone, and keep reading.